All right, has everybody got your Bibles? Amen. This morning is January 29th, 2012, Sunday, and the name of uh, this message will be Reborn Supremacy. I guess what's the last one? Yeah, uh-huh. I remember that movie. Not Reborn, but Born Supremacy. Kind of. Everybody got me on that one? All right, we're good. Do I need some more coffee? And I'll take that as a yes. Cool. Um, the most famous scripture that you will see or probably hear of in the United States is what? John 3.16. Who can quote it for? Raise your hand. Allison, go ahead. Oh, that is true. Uh, who knows the latter half of that? Yes, ma'am. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That was perfectly accurate and beautiful. I love yeah. her accent. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Mine doesn't sound as uh, eloquent. So John three sixteen being the the central scripture and verse that we're most saturated with. Can anybody tell me without looking what John three fifteen says? Maybe not. How about John three seventeen? Go ahead, Eugene. Hey, we're doing good on that one. But y'all kind of get the feeling I'm not doing this to shame you guys. But what we're saturated with is just the one verse that pertains of a blessing to us. But isn't it more important that we understand what comes before it and also what comes after it? Yes, everybody agree? If you agree, let's go to John chapter 3. There. There. Wow, it's fast. Just look for the sea of red letters. Found it. All right, let's start in verse 1. Now there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Does everybody have a footnote there on born again? What does it say? Born from above. Yeah, there's, there's about two or three of them. Yeah, born from above. Now let's back up a little bit in verse 1. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Pharisee was a sect within Judaism, kind of like we have our denominations. But when that name is applied, there's also backgrounds and uh, fundamental understandings that this guy had. Now, to become a Pharisee, it would be the equivalent of a high-level doctorate in, in, in our educational world. And not just a high-level doctorate, but someone who is a teacher among teachers. And even further with this guy, he was part of the ruling council. Does anybody know the name of that ruling council? Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin. Made up of 70 men that were the elite of elite, these guys would be the ones that would gather and decide on heavy-weighted matters that directed the affairs of the nation of Israel, but also, they're more or less like the Supreme Court. All the other rabbis within their local synagogues would deal with certain issues, and just like the Jethro and Moses principle, 
they would bring these things higher up and it would stand before the 70. And then once the 70 decided, it was conclusive of what they were, what actually they were to take part of. Nicodemus, saying all this, Nicodemus was not uh, an educationally deficient guy. In fact, he was one of the superiors of his day. There were three schools that Jewish boys went through. By the time they got to the second one, which would be the equivalent of the eighth grade for us, maybe ninth grade, they would have memorized all of the Older Testament. That's 39 books. Most children in the elementary school level, the first grade, I mean the first tier of education, would have the, the Pentateuch or the Torah memorized, the first five. This was so ingrained in them, they lived and breathed and literally ate according to what God's Word said. And now much beyond that, at the third school, you would go and apply yourself to a rabbi, much like the medical community does with an intern. And that rabbi would look at the student and he would determine, does this man or, or young man have the ability to imitate me? Can he do what I do, but more importantly, not educationally wise, but can he do it like I do it? Can he mimic me exactly? And once you were accepted, you were trained literally walking so close behind this rabbi that the dust that he would kick up would fall upon you. Most of you guys have heard that teaching within our church, right? Raise your hand if you have. Good. Gives me a good base and understanding. Well, this guy, Nicodemus, went to that level as a Pharisee, but now he became part of the Sanhedrin and was a teacher among teachers. We put this in military terms, he would be an equivalent of a, probably a three-star general, a commander of commanders. So whenever he is discussing the word, whenever he's evaluating what is happening within the nation of Israel, and he's seeing this Yeshua arise, what's one of the first indicators that he sees that proves that Jesus is of God? The miracles, the miraculous signs and wonders. You don't necessarily see a huge thirst or quest for Jesus. How much of the Tanakh can you quote? How much knowledge do you possess within you? That's not the functional, that's not the, the mindset that a Jewish man understood who God was. A Jewish man would look at the Word, look at what God is doing, and see function related. Not just this mere knowledge. So let's go back and read this again. Start at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, let's stop right there. If this is a teacher among teachers, in fact, Nicodemus's name means he is victorious or a ruler among his people. And it's a Greek name of a Jewish man. Kind of shows you some of his influences. And he looks at Jesus and says, Rabbi, and continues on. We know that you, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. Hmm. For no one could perform the reckless signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now, based on some of my interaction with other parts of the gospel, usually when someone calls him good or rabbi, immediately you see Jesus' flags just go way up and he goes, why are you calling me this? I feel saturated in your syrup of, of flattery. He, he was very attuned to who was trying to manipulate him and why. 
Why would this teacher among teachers, this guy that was highly esteemed among all his peers and on the ruling council, come to him at night and then ask him, or not ask him anything, but just say, Rabbi, I see that you are of God. Well, let's look at Jesus' reply and see exactly how he took it. In, in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Jesus looked directly at his, this, his statement and analyzed it and said, hmm, you're perceiving that, number one, I am a rabbi, and that because of the miraculous signs that I do, God is with me. But I'm throwing this right back in your face. Nobody can see what the kingdom of God really consists of unless you were born again. Now, hopefully this guy's trying to, at this moment to draw from the wealth of knowledge that he has of the Word of God and say, what in the world does this guy mean by born again? And see the kingdom of God. Well, of course I see the kingdom of God. I see Israel as an established nation. We're subdued by the Romans. But still throughout God's history, we are waiting for the Messiah that would deliver us from this all and fulfill the kingdom that we already see at work here. That's what should be going through his mind. But how does he reply? How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked, surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Now, in all regards, Jesus is having a little bit of fun with this guy and showing him a little bit of mercy at the same time. He first addresses Nicodemus's statement to him with, you see this in me, but guess what? I see this deficient in you. When Nicodemus replies with a very natural answer, showing no understanding or drawing from the well of what God's living word is, he says, hmm, I need to respond with the same thing he's looking for. So let's read Jesus' response. I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. He's responding like and like. This guy is coming at him with a very naturalistic understanding of entering back into his mother's womb at an elderly age. And he's going, you're, you're basically missing the whole point, guy. This is about the kingdom of God that I'm talking. Not about just the visual signs and wonders that I perform. But Jesus always performs signs and wonders to advance God's kingdom. Not his name, not his position. Which is the very things that Nicodemus put his trust in. Verse 6, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying, you must be born again. Why? Why shouldn't you be surprised? Because this guy has spent his life not only swimming in God's word, memorizing it, taking to heart, following another rabbi for years, imitating how this guy followed God but now as a teacher among other teachers. But let's look at the next verse that Jesus alludes to. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. No pun intended, but did Jesus just pull this out of thin air? No. Jesus never pulls things randomly out of thin air. He understands he's talking with a guy who's supposed to be an expert in the law and all of the Tanakh, the 39 books. So he's going to start throwing in references that show truth, but also show where this guy is missing the bigger point. Everybody turn to uh, Ecclesiastes, verse, uh, chapter 11. 
there. It's quick, brother. Spend time on that boat just makes you good at flipping to the next chapter in your Bible. Chapter 11. Now, I realize, guys, I'm, I'm touching a chapter within the word that the majority of the United States and also the world, well, maybe not the world, because most of the world is another religion. Anyway, the majority of the United States is familiar with, at least John 3.16. But we use the term born again, or reborn, new birth, all the time. We see that as the goal of what we're trying to achieve when we're preaching the gospel, this rescuing, rescuing or this salvation. But let's read here in Ecclesiastes 11, verse five, uh, 15. I'm sorry, 5. <laughs> As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in the mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Now, Jesus didn't come right out and say, Nicodemus, turn to Ecclesiastes 11, verse 5. But what he did was masterful at because he was the word in flesh. Is that he saw a deficiency within this guy that he appeared to know everything, but when pressed for truth, was found to be hollow. And nothing of substance was inside him. So he begins to throw an illusion out there. And it's not just something at random where the spirit is equal to wind. And, and trust me, I think if you have a pure heart, everything that you do will be pure. And the reason I'm saying is that as a newly spirit-filled Christian, years ago, I remember praying, and I had my hands up. The speaking in tongues things was new to me. Everything was new in Jesus to me. And I had my hands up, and I was sweating, because I was just praying for a while, and the room was kind of warm. And I remember going... Oh, Lord, I feel your presence. Yes, it is like a wind. Your spirit's just like wind, and it's cooling me off from head to toe. So I finally realized I had my hands up near the AC vent of the seat. <laughs> my heart was pure, and I was trying to interact with God's Word in a pure way, and it was God's Spirit interacting with me. But honestly, guys, He is not just sticking within physical means that every time you feel wind, that's a spirit or the Spirit of God moving. He's making an allusion to an audience of one man who is the elite among elite that thinks he knows the word and is coming to flatter Jesus and more or less find out a little bit more about him, but in secret as a coward. And Jesus is proving him, Nicodemus, to who he really is. Basically, he's showing Nicodemus for what he really is. So let's read this again in Ecclesiastes. As you do not know the path of the wind, or how the body is formed in a mother's womb. So you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. He just slapped Nicodemus straight across the face. Let's see if Nicodemus gets it. Go back to John. Y'all like to be slapped in the face? Would you like to be slapped in the face if you were wrong and headed to hell? Yeah. Absolutely. Can I stand down here? No. This feels so much more natural. But I love that pulpit. It's awesome. It's beautiful. Verse 9. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. Jesus kind of, I can see him, Jesus just kind of pausing, going, oh. <laughs> You are Israel's teacher, 
said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? You are the very God that's responsible for taking the word of God and feeding it to the nation of Israel so that they can maintain to be who they are, God's chosen people, and fulfill the promises that God has given them. And you don't understand the basic principle of how you're to initiate or have a relationship with God? Is it just mere rhyme and rule and ritual to you? Guys, when you read the word and you see Jesus being extremely harsh, he's usually harsh to people who should know better. So when you're reading God's word and you see something encouraging, that's beautiful and great. But when you're reading God's word and it slaps you in the face, it's not because you didn't know it before. It's that he's waking you up to something, to, some, to a principle that you should know. You should be held accountable to. So whenever we read, we read John 3.16, it does apply to all of mankind through all of time. It is a principle and a truth that is universal and eternal. But in this book, in this accounting, he is talking to an audience of one man. And that one man should know better. And God is revealing it to him. The real question is, and it's not, not documented here, what did Nicodemus do with this? What did Nicodemus do with this correction? Did he go home and sulk? Did he go home? Well, there's no accounting, so we don't know. I hope he didn't sulk. I hope it pierced his heart. I hope it was the living uh, part of God's word that circumcised the old nasty flesh off of him, his pride, his arrogance, his title as being victorious or ruler of his people, <coughs> threw it away and put on the true hum humility that Christ had and imitated the true rabbi. Verse 11. I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know. And we testify to what we have seen. But still... Here comes the phrase, you people do not accept our testimony. <laughs> oh, no, he did not do that. Well, the whole reason being is that his disciples are with him, are in close proximity. But who was the witness? Who was in his presence at all times validating everything that he said? The spirit of the end and the Father. The father came down whenever he was being baptized and said, This is my son, whom I'm well pleased. God showed his approval of everything that Jesus did. And Jesus said, I only do what I see my father doing. And in a separate verse, he says, I only say what I hear my father speaking. So everything that you see here in red, if your Bible has that, is what he is getting directly from the father. There is no sin in the way to convolute this. There is no lack of understanding because, number one, He is the living Word. He is the fleshly representation of God's breath and Word that brings about creation, something from nothing. And He looks at Nicodemus as a saying, You're a moron. You don't get this. You have all these credentials, all this time, years, 40 plus years you have spent with your face embedded in God's word and you don't even understand one plus one in the kingdom of God. Saints, when we are given the entire book, 60, 66 books, 
the newer revealing what the older is talking about and men interacting with the Older Testament is demonstrated to us throughout the Newer Testament, how much more accountable are we? What this message is about is not just a gospel message of salvation. It's understanding the audience that he is speaking this to are the ones that are the most churched. It is you guys that as God's word is put in front of you, you are held accountable to it. And you have to love it. You have to embrace it. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Do you want to hear that word from Jesus? No. I want to be in the position where his words to me are life. They're not confined to just the earthly things. This sound system enables me to carry my voice across this room. To be heard on a video so that you can clearly discern what I'm saying past my a, a wonderful ability to mumble and talk through my nose. But none of that contains the ability to speak with the anointing. That microphone, guitar, drum, ability to display words does not contain the anointing of God. We do whenever we are fully submitted to God and saying, Lord, what do you say? I will say. What you do, I will do. And then and only then, he will speak through you and to you the heavenly things. I have very precious things in my life, and one of them, or four of them, are my daughters. Who I entrust them to, I am very concerned about. Who protects them, I am very concerned about. Who they become as women of God, is very important to me, the point I lay down my life. And this is my child. How much more important is the blameless Lamb of God, Jesus, given to you by the Father and what you do with Him? Uh, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but you first have to get in Him. Otherwise, there is. Verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him, trusts in Him, may have eternal life. We are born again, or reborn, so that we can have supremacy. That may sound arrogant in some form or fashions, but wouldn't you say that if you are confident that you are washed in the blood of Jesus, you are in the center of God's will, that you, by the right of Jesus, have the ability to live forever. Not in this body, but in the resurrected body. Amen. That that is superior to what man could ever do for you. That's superior to what everything else is within your creation. That by being in God's will, but more so being covered in the blood of Jesus and declared righteous in His sight, apart from your own works gives you the ability to inherit supremacy. Now, several times throughout our age and across the globe, since day one, honestly, of mankind, 
a sinful nature will prompt you or tempt you to gain that supremacy on your own. That's where he fell. She tried to gain supremacy outside the blood of Jesus, and that looked like her knowing good from evil, and Adam as well. So whenever you do not pause to find out what God's word requires of you, you are stepping out from underneath his authority and pursuing supremacy through your own works. The word is not just your foundation, it is the structure, it is the roof, it is the fine detail that is painted on the wall. It is your everything. When I find myself struggling the most with my thoughts and my will and emotion, my ability to discern good from evil, it's probably because I have not spent enough time in the Word, or I'm not pausing to just hear what the Word is already saying. Amen. Amen. But the minute I tell Jesus, I'm really horrible at this. I need your help. The goal for us, saints, if that is your typical reaction of getting to that worn out point and having to cry out for God's help, our goal is to make that our first reaction, not our last. We shouldn't exhaust our own resources of depending on what we can do, our name, or our positions to achieve what God wants to do for us. But it's rather through our obedience and submission to Him. Everybody turn to Numbers 21. Now I'm hoping and trusting that you guys are following your Bible reading plans. This is what happens at John 3 was for today, or yesterday. Numbers 21 was a while back, a couple weeks ago, or a week and a half ago. And the reason I say that is it, it should bring some familiarity when we read Numbers 21 and John 3. We will not just gurge, but regurgitate God's Word. At 2 o'clock today, we'll go gurge. But hopefully you don't regurge. Keep it down. <laughs> I know, I'm gross. It's pretty funny. I'll see y'all's faces when I say that. Alright, so Numbers 21, verse 4. Cody, read it out loud through voice verse 9. And they set out from the Mount forward by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? But there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. <laughs> what was this miserable food? Man, bread from heaven. Something you, you've never seen before, you can't buy in stores, and God's been doing for about, oh, 40 years or so. <laughs> Tastes like honey, coriander seed. The first part stood out to me when I read that. The people grew what? Impatient. Hmm. When you find yourself to be impatient, isn't it usually that you're trying to decide in your own strength what's good and what's evil? What's the right thing to do? Well, I kind of see it's this way, but I'm not seeing it happen this way. So I just got to do something about it. Well, they begin to do something about it, but not physically with their hands, because God stripped every means of self-provision away from them. Isn't that where God wants you sometimes? Lord, why am I losing my job? And... Oh, my friends have deserted me and blah, blah, blah. Well, it's probably because you had a job that you idolized and all your friends were carnal. So that God can strip away what you have worshipped for so long. What came out of them when pressed was impatience and a desire to go back to slavery. 
desire to go back and eat the leeks and onions of what once bound them. Does the pressing of circumstances force that out of you? If you're honest, you say yes. I wish, I wish I could have a house like so-and-so. Then I would be happy. I wish I could have this life that I see in this person. Because then and only then I could really be happy. And I wouldn't struggle with all these insecurities and fears and impatience that I have. This torment of understanding good from evil would no longer bother me. Saints, that doesn't end until the day that you die. And a temporary relief is a constant inoculation through the Word of God and adhering to what His good and evil is. The last part of that is that they did nothing. There was no physical action that they went and did that caused the snakes to rise up and poison snakes to bite them and cause them to die. This was the action. The, your mouth, your tongue has the power of life and death. Wield it as a man would with a fully automatic machine. Don't put it in the trust of, or in the care of those who will mishandle it. Meaning that you do not speak words that have potency and power and entrust them to people who will mismanage them. Well, I was just saying the truth. And you just loaded an M16 and gave it to a five-year-old. And you wonder why somebody got hurt. The longer that we are submitted under God's Word, the greater skill that we can gain by being submitted to Him in our mouth. Because what comes out of our mouth by our pure nature outside of God's Word is nothing but death. It causes death upon us. But how about this? I'm just throwing this out there. What if you were that one person that murmured? that caused everybody else to murmur, and snakes begin to bite the people that you told that to, but you're still left alive to watch everyone else that you affected die. That's what happens with our words. And then God comes in, in mercy and grace, and he raises up a bronze serpent on a pole, a redemptive plan. That's what bronze means, to redeem. I'm sorry, silver is to redeem. Judgment is bronze. He raises up in the midst of judgment this symbol of their sin. I don't know. It may have looked a little bit like a cross. So that everyone who looked upon this cross could gain life. And from what, the video that we saw today by Louis Giglio is that in the fiber of our beings is this ever-present symbol. This reaching out to life because it's the life that's, that we're made of. It's the life that we need. Human beings, regardless of race, regardless of culture, regardless of anything that you were born into, you are in need of the cross. You are in need of being redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And outside of that, there is no There isn't. There's a temporary facade that is there. There's immediate relief from just kind of popping off at the mouth and groaning a little bit. But it will never fix your eternal situation of being clouded in death. But take in your mouth with therefore the rudder of the ship of who you are, like James says. You'll begin to steer it into God's presence, into his word, and find that redemptive plan that you need to restore your life and put it back together.
Just do lives fall apart for Christian people? Yes. What's the hope that Christians have that people outside of Jesus don't? In the end, yes, resurrection. It's resurrection of also the things in my life now. My life is a resurrection of the dead because I once was in death. That when he says you must be born again to enter and to see the kingdom of God. That means that when you walk as Jesus desires you to walk as he walked, you enter into his life and you will see the kingdom of God in your life now. You will enter into the kingdom of God now. Your life will break down. But it will be built back up because the resurrection is the crowning jewel that God is still in control. The very essence and fiber of our being of proteins that are held together by a, a, a similar a, a bonding protein that looks like a cross means that your life is held together by his sacrifice, not by your ability to understand what's right or what's wrong. Let's go to Colossians chapter 1. Today, if you were bitten by a snake, what would be one of the first things you do? Ouch. <laughs> and yeah, you'd probably say ouch. Or maybe scream like a little girl. Not you guys, I'm talking about you girls. But who would you call first? I mean, just honest, be honest with me. 911, right? And a symbol for 911 on the back of the paramedic van or, or the ambulance is what? It's a snake on a pole. And just so happens that it's these lines that crisscross and intersect with each other. If you connect them in a certain way, it looks like the Star of David. But hey, I'm just saying it looks like that. <laughs> that when you are bitten by sin, you call. You call the one who can fix it, who can bond it all together. Chapter 1. Let's start in verse. Mm, that's so good. Let's start in verse 10. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. By Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. Your boss's position over you was created by Jesus and for Jesus, 
not just your paycheck. He is before all things, and in him all things are held together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. If I am redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, the blood of the Lamb, and brought into sonship with Jesus to the Father, and He has supremacy, and everything was created by Jesus for Jesus, and I embed my life, my whole life, into Him and follow Him just like the disciples did, where does that put me? That puts me at being reborn supremacy. The same titles that rest upon him, now I inherit as well, as we read the previous verses before that. So do you really lack in the moment? Are you really deficient of finances, of joy, of hope, of peace, whatever it is in that moment? No. No. You have inherited everything that Jesus has. We will fully inherit it in all of who we are at the resurrection. But we can see and enter his kingdom now by accepting the very image and sacrifice that holds the fibers of our body together. Turn to Ephesians. Chapter 1. Same author. Different audience, different town. The same topic. By the way, what Bible did Paul have? New International Version. You know, he didn't have King Jimmy. He had the Older Testament in Hebrew and possibly even in Greek with the Septuagint. In fact, he was familiar with that. And in his studies, similar to Nicodemus, but Paul being stripped of his name from Saul to Paul, being stripped of his position as a Pharisee, being trained under Gamaliel, the elite of elite of rabbis, the rabbonites, and how having been associated with a sect of Judaism that is stirring up trouble and causing persecuted if not killed because of heresy. He has joined it. And he sees throughout the Older Testament this repetitive pattern of God exalting man out of his mire and muck and making him supreme but through the sacrifice of God's Son, the Lamb of God. Israel became a nation. They were birthed as a nation because they obeyed God's word to apply the sacrifice, the Passover lamb. If you did not, death would consume your firstborn. And you had no hope. Chapter 1, verse 11. Let's actually start in verse 3. This is so good. Praise be to God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Verse 11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we, the nation of Israel, who were first to hope in Christ, might be the praise of his glory, and you, Gentiles, also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked with him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. To the praise of his glory. Saints, we are that verse 13, the you. Unless you were a nationalized Jew who grew up, grew up in Judaism, we are that you. We inherited something that wasn't originally given to us, but the doors were open for us to come in through the blood of Jesus. So, how much more precious should we as Gentiles treat? what was given originally to Israel. And Israel takes it as a precious thing because it was opened up first to them before all mankind. Our hope and our salvation is not just based on whether or not life is good today or good tomorrow. Our hope and salvation is based on the eternal evidence that that tomb is empty. Yes. Amen. As long as that tomb is empty, and it has been for 2,000 years, my hope is still alive. My hope about whatever financial, emotional, family, whatever issue comes about, my hope is that it has been created by Jesus and for Jesus. Amen. Go to Hebrews 12. Can everybody say when we say, my troubles, my troubles are by him, by him and for him. <coughs> so when you walk out of this place and you have a flat tire, car won't start, the baby is throwing up all over you, which it happens at times, it does. Think in your mind, this situation, this hardship was created by Jesus and for Jesus. So whether or not I choose to participate in it or outside. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on 
Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. This Bible has finisher in it. I, I love that version, by the way. I like finisher. He is the perfecter, the completer. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's possible, guys. It's possible to lose heart. You may have had a moment of it. In fact, bring you into the reality of Jesus' life when he went into... The deepest, darkest hour. First of the Garden of Gethsemane, you could say. When the weight of what he was about to do came upon him. And this just hit me the other day. I've been reading the Gospels for a long time. But it said that he fell. Fell to the ground on his face. When he was walking into the Garden of Gethsemane. That's not just a man who is slightly overcome with burdens and in that moment, the joy set before him. He struggled with sin. He didn't have sin, but he struggled against sin and its effects. And he was about to take it on for all of mankind and all of eternity. And he fell face down because of the weight of it. I'm sure some of you guys have been there before. That point in your life, that distress, that one moment where literally you physically feel like falling face to the ground because you can't take it anymore. Your chest is about to explode. It makes final exams look like cupcakes. And you cry out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because sin or opposition from sin is pressing you so hard. Don't think that Jesus hasn't been where you've been. Don't. He's been there and further. He's been to hell and back. And the hope that we have that enables us not to lose heart is the fact that he has been there, but he has gone to the place that we are promised, but given us the tools and equipment and strength and courage and power that we need to pick ourselves up and finish praying. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. It's not that I want to avoid struggles and pressing in my life. In fact, that will make me a huge pansy in the kingdom. <laughs> Touting verbally to all my enemies, come and bring it on, but never accomplishing or getting out of my mind. No, no recliner. But I want to be the one, and hopefully you guys do too, they get out of the seat of Christianity and we're willing to run, not just walk, but run into the face of what God has put in front of you, even if there's an army of thousands standing before you, and say, this is heavy, this is hard, but not my will, yours be done. And if it means that the shredding of my body from swords brings God glory, let it be so. Amen. Amen.